I leaned across to my son before I came up to the pulpit and I said, you want to preach? And he said, sure. I like that. I like that a lot. It will not be a news flash to you today when I tell you that we live in unprecedented times. We live in times of trouble and turmoil. Diseases infect our bodies. The threat of violence and and terrorism fill our streets and our nation and our world. Economic disaster looms large. I'm sure you heard several days ago that Former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan uh, predicted what he called an imminent, significant market event. Many Americans, I think you would agree, are living in fear. We are uh, living in days of trouble, and as a result, anxiety tends to grab us around the throat. This is nothing new. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ was very sensitive to the needs of his disciples. He was very aware of the trouble that filled the hearts of his followers. And so, hours before he went to the cross, if you remember, a few weeks ago, he told them this, Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he went on, verses 1 to 14, to offer what we have called the antidote for the troubled heart. And now as he continues in this very important discourse with the disciples, he continues to offer encouragement. He offers encouragement that will fill his disciples with what I would like to call a God-centered confidence. Here's the good news. The same encouragement that the Lord Jesus offered his disciples on that particular occasion, he offers to you and me as well. And you will see these encouraging words in our passage this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me once again to John's Gospel and turn with me to John chapter 14. And as you make your way to John's Gospel, would you stand with me out of respect for the authority of God's Word and we'll read together verses 15 through 26. John chapter 15, or John chapter 14 rather, beginning in verse 15. This is the Word of the Lord. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, I and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me, does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, Father God, uh, as we have the opportunity to read your word today. We, as we will learn in a few moments, of course, stand on the other side of Pentecost. We stand on the other side of this great promise that you made to your disciples. And now we are partakers of the promise that they were just becoming familiar with in this chapter. And so, God, I I confess that along with many uh, 
Baptists historically in our nation's history that we have neglected to our peril the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We no longer want to be numbered among those who neglect the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come now in great power. I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me to proclaim the word of God so that the people of God would be equipped, so that they would be challenged, so that they would be comforted, and that you, Holy Spirit, would do a, a mighty work here in this place. We trust you as we say week in and week out to do a good work of grace so that the people of God would leave with a great benefit in their hearts today. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Great Promise. And as I've already prayed, my prayer to you, and my prayer for us today, would be that as you become more familiar with what we're calling the great promise, that you would hear the great promise, that you would embrace the great promise, that you would be challenged by this great promise, that you would walk away this morning with hearts that are full with heads that are full so that you will, by God's grace, be enabled to live yet another seven days for the glory of God. As we look at this great promise, I want to pose three very basic questions that will help us to become just a little bit more familiar with the promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. Here are the three questions in advance. First, we will ask who is promised? Who is it who is promised? Then we will move to the second question. We'll ask what is promised? And then finally, we'll ask why then does Jesus Christ make this promise? So as we think about the great promise, look at the first question with me. The very important question, who is promised? Look with me at verse 16. Jesus says it like this. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. The answer to the question, who is promised, emerges here. It's the word, the English word, the helper. Who is promised is none other than the helper. This comes from a Greek word that we'll put on the screen. It's a very important Greek word. Parakaletos. Parakaletos. That word we will see throughout the pages of the New Testament. We will see it in greater detail as we walk through John's Gospel. But for now, if you would look with me just a few paragraphs ahead to John chapter 15, verse 26, we see the word once again, parakletos. Jesus says, but when the helper, that's parakletos, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then look ahead a bit further to John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says once again, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now stop. Here you are, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had walked with Jesus. They had learned from Jesus. They had fallen in love with the Savior. This was, this was the man they loved to be around. He was their Lord. He was the, the kurios. He was their master. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. And now Jesus says something that must have appeared very strange in their ears. And this is moving past the context of what we're studying today. Once they have learned about the parakletos, now Jesus says in verse 7 of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. I'm sure if any of the disciples were bald, they would have scratched their bald heads and thought, it is to our advantage that you go away. May I ask a question, Jesus? I'm sure that must have run through their minds. So Jesus says, it is to your benefit, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the parakletos will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him. Many of you know that I make a big deal about personal pronouns. And you know the question I'm going to ask right now. Who is him? Who's the him that Jesus refers to? And the answer is the parakletos. But if I go, I will send him the parakletos to you. You ask, what is the parakletos? Who is the parakletos? This is the one who is called alongside. This is the one who is called alongside to help his people. Now, many of you have the English Standard Version in your lap. Some of you have other translations, the NAS or the NIV or otherwise, the New King James. So depending on your translation, if you turn your attention back to John chapter 14, verse 16, what is rendered as the helper, which comes from this word parakletos, you may have another translation of the word, and any of these words are perfectly applicable. You may find in your translation the word advocate, which is really a word that describes a defense attorney. You may have the word rendered as encourager. You may have the word exhorter. You may have the word counselor. Or some of you may have the word comforter. All of these words, comforter, encourager, helper, exhorter, advocate, all point to the most important word, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside, in, is none other than the third member of the Godhead. Jesus refers now to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. To look a little bit further with me. Jesus says once again, I'll ask the Father and He will give you, if you would mark the word, another. He will give you another helper. This word another means, you ready for this? It means another of the same kind. This is significant. When Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will send another of the same kind, that is, like Jesus, the helper, the parakletos, the comforter, the exhorter, the advocate, the counselor, the comforter, another of the same kind. And this should come as no surprise if you've been walking with Jesus for any period of time, because we know this, that the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father as well as the Son. That is to say, and we will see this in greater detail in a moment, the Holy Spirit shares all of the attributes of God. That is to say, the Holy Spirit shares all of the attributes with the Father as well as the Son. One commentator says that Jesus' promise was that he would send another helper exactly like himself. A person who could adequately take his place and empower his work. Now it makes sense when Jesus in John chapter 16 verse 7 tells his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go away. I would put it this way, they're not getting ripped off. They are not getting ripped off. It is to their advantage that Jesus goes away. Now he will send another of the same kind, a helper, to empower them. And we'll see what else happens in the lives of God's people when the Holy Spirit is sent. But for now, I want to remind you who it is we're talking about. We're asking the question, who is promised? His name is the parakletos, the helper, the comforter, the encourager, the counselor. But I want you to remember, because I, I, get, I get in conversations all the time, and I, I, I learn over and over and over again that we as people in the body of Christ, we tend to forget that the Holy Spirit is not some mystical force. Are you with me? He is not some mystical force. The Holy Spirit is not an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Bible says this, the Holy Spirit speaks. When we get to John chapter 15, we will 
learn about this verse in greater detail. But in verse 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, when the Parakletos comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. I want you to hear this very clearly. The Holy Spirit is not an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Lord Jesus Christ tells His disciples, when the Parakletos comes, He will speak. And most specifically, He will bear witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to also notice with me in Romans chapter 8. And I have some interesting comments to make about Romans chapter 8 in just a few minutes that I think you'll find fascinating. But look at Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. I want you to also see who it is we're referring to when Jesus raises the issue about the person of the Parakletos. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I want you to remember that as we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, who is a person, He not only speaks, but the Bible tells us this, He prays. He prays. In addition, John chapter 14, verse 26, we learn that the Holy Spirit teaches. And we know that He teaches through the instrumentality of His Word. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I read a book this week that I will keep nameless for now. A book that is a a biography, a book about a, a man who was totally transformed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, totally transformed by the gospel. But my contention would be this, because this man was not well taught, that this man has been swept away by emotionalism, and how he feels. He had someone come to him and said to him this about his troubled daughter. In eight months, this is what God told me, in eight months, your daughter will be a new person. Well, guess what happened? In six months, his daughter became a new person. And the author said it something like this. He was wrong. And you know what? I appreciated that honesty and that integrity. The person who told him this is what the Lord said was wrong. That is to say, we must stop relying on how we feel. When we rely exclusively on our feelings, that is not to discount feelings, but when we rely on our feelings and we close the Word of God, we open ourselves up to error. We open ourselves up to what Paul referred to as the doctrine of demons. I want you to see also that the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, He leads the people of God. Romans 8.14 says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Some of you are here this morning and you don't want to be led. You have a, a spirit of autonomy. You have a spirit of free will. And I would say that we not only cast away this notion of, I'm going to do what I feel like doing, we cast away the notion that I will do as I please. Rather, we choose to be led by the Parakletos, by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see also, as we emphasize the point that the Holy Spirit is a person, that He can be lied to. In Acts chapter 5, we see that that amazing story about Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, I would have you turn there with me. And without getting into any depth, we see what happens to these very interesting people. In Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 1, 
A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So they're into the real estate business. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to? Who does he lie to? He lies to the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is not an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit is a person who, in this case, Ananias lied to. I want you to see also that the Holy Spirit may be resisted. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, we read, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, to be clear, it's important that you understand that in the short term, people can resist the Holy Spirit. They do have that ability, but in the long term, when we talk about salvation... All those whom God the Father has called to himself in eternity past will most certainly be drawn. It's what the Reformers refer to as irresistible grace. It's what the Puritans refer to as irresistible grace. Some of you like the big word efficacious grace. I love that. That is to say that God will draw his people to himself irresistibly. And you say this, I hear this a lot, but pastor, what about free will? My question is this, what about free will? Or better yet, what about the free will of God? The free will of God. I want you to see also that the Holy Spirit, who is a person, can be quenched. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. We see in Matthew 12, verse 31, that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, that the Holy Spirit has a mind, the Holy Spirit has a will, and the Holy Spirit does, in fact, have emotions, as Ephesians 4.30 says. But here is the big truth I want you to remember as we walk through and understand who this is that Jesus is promising. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. If you are still in Acts chapter 5, I did not finish this little story, but we have learned that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. But notice what else happens in this passage. Verse 4. While it remains unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it, Peter says, that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but God. And who was it that Peter was referring to the verse prior? He was talking about the third member of the Godhead, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. And so we see that this man, Ananias, lied to God. James White says it like this, Within the one being that is God, there exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us this, that the Holy Spirit stands alongside the Father and the Son. We learn that the Holy Spirit is invisible. Theologians say He is incorporeal. We like the word invisible. The Holy Spirit shares, as I've already discussed, all the attributes of God. Name an attribute of God. Here's what you will discover. The Holy Spirit has that attribute. Name any attribute of God. The Holy Spirit has that given attribute. So now, jump into the shoes of the disciples with me. As they learn about the parakletos, as they learn about the helper, the Holy Spirit, this must have been a tremendous encouragement to them. As difficult as it was to learn that the Lord Jesus Christ would soon make his departure because he would be crucified on Calvary's cross, they learn this, that Jesus will ask the Father and he will give another helper. And as we consider the, the, the amazing encouragement that the disciples must have received, I want to apply this right here, right now, in June of 2016, and ask, is this not an encouragement to you as well? 
that the Holy Spirit now, not in the future, but now will comfort you when you face a discouraging day. Let's do something. Would you do this with me? If you had a discouraging week, would you raise your hand? Maybe about a third of you. Know this, that the third member of the Godhead has been sent. It's not future tense like it was for the disciples. It is past tense now. He has been sent to comfort you when you face discouragement. Is it not encouraging to know that the Holy Spirit will help you when you reach the end of your rope? That the Holy Spirit will encourage you when you deal with despondency. That the Holy Spirit will encourage you when you get that diagnosis that you were afraid to hear about. That the Holy Spirit will exhort you when you need a gentle nudge. That's putting it politely, isn't it? Sometimes we need a gentle nudge. Sometimes we need a smack right across the face, right? Have you ever been there? Where the Holy Spirit challenges you or convicts you. That is His ministry, and it is a gracious ministry. Isn't it encouraging to know that the Holy Spirit will come come alongside to be your comforter, to be your counselor, to be your advocate? It's no surprise that the last couple of years at Christ Fellowship have been difficult years. And I can tell you, this is something I've never shared publicly before, but I can tell you that in the middle of the darkest of those days, I called my friend Bruce Parker. It's his birthday today, actually. And I called Bruce. He's a dear friend who pastors down in Hood River, Oregon. And when I say he's a dear friend, I want to tell you that I met Bruce at a, at a retreat that I was invited to speak at uh, about five years ago. And then I was re-invited to that retreat a couple years ago, and I was reacquainted with Bruce again. Uh, we've shared a few meals together. He's been to our house once, but that's all I know him. A few meals, a few retreats, a visit to the house, and he has become a dear brother. Well, as a man who is is, uh, senior to me, that is older than me, don't tell him I said that, he's a man I respect and look up to, and so I called him in the heat of the battle here at Christ Fellowship, and I just said, Bruce, would would you pray? (laughs) This is getting really hard. Who else do I talk to? And here's what Bruce said. I'll never forget it. I was telling his, his son-in-law and his daughter just a few days ago about Bruce's response to me. He said this. As a man who lives in Hood River, he said, David, I've been there. I've done that. I've experienced times of adversity in ministry. And he said, if you ever get to the point where you just need me to come and sit with you and listen to you, even if it's just for a few minutes, you say the word and I will drive up to Everson from Hood River. My mouth went like this. Now, I never took him up on that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, here is a man who I basically don't even know very well. We've shared a few meals. He's been to my house. We've, been, we've shared a, a, some, some great times at a few men's retreats. And he says, I would be willing to come and comfort you and console you and just listen to you. That is just a snippet. That is just the tip of the iceberg at the ministry that we have at our disposal with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is available for you 24-7. The Holy Spirit is there to comfort you, to console you, to encourage you. He is there for the people of God. And to know that now God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has sent the Holy Spirit. This should be an enormous encouragement as we wrestle with the weighty matters of life that trouble us so much. I want you to move with me back to John chapter 14 and look at verse 17. Look at verse 17 as Jesus articulates with more precision who it is who is promised. He is not only the parakletos. Now he says in verse 17, this is the spirit of truth. 
that I am referring to. The Spirit of truth. Now, I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit always tells the truth. Why does He always tell the truth? Because the third member of the Godhead is, someone help me, God. And it is impossible for God to lie. You've heard me say this before, that some of you have had Sunday school teachers who said that God can do anything. That sounds grandiose. That sounds God-centered. It's not true. God can do anything according to His most holy will. There's one thing in particular He cannot do. There are others as well. That's for another message. But He cannot lie. And so the Holy Spirit always bears witness to the truth. He always bears witness to the truth. The Holy Spirit guides the people of God in the way of truth. He guides the people of God in the way of truth. And that's why when someone comes to you and says, for instance, like I shared about my author friend, I have a word from the Lord, and it turns out to be wrong, you can remember this. Take this to the bank. God didn't tell him that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit never lies. He always guides the people of God in the way of truth. Moreover, the Holy Spirit illumines and teaches spiritual truth. We saw this earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I want you to remember that the Holy Spirit never contradicts God or the Word of God. He never contradicts God or the Word of God. Now notice something fascinating that occurs in verse 17. As Jesus tells His disciples, even the Spirit of truth... Whom the world, that is the unconverted, that is the pagan world, cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Notice here that the world, the unregenerate, cannot comprehend spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says as much. The disciples, on the other hand, Jesus says, recognize spiritual truth. They embrace spiritual truth. And as we'll see in just a moment, the reason they can do that is they are indwelt. They are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the helper. He is the Spirit of truth. I want to move forward now and pose this second question. What exactly is promised? What is promised? Back in verse 16, the first thing, the very most basic thing I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit will help by virtue of His name, Parakletos, that is translated helper, comforter, counselor. We begin by saying that the Holy Spirit will help. But look at the end of verse 16. He will give you another helper to be with you for a few years. It doesn't say that, does it? How long will the Holy Spirit be with the disciples? And how long will the Holy Spirit be with you? The Greek word is ion. A-I-O-N. Forever and ever and ever and ever. I love it when children ask me, how long is eternity? I usually tell them, ask your, your mom. Right? It's infinite. It's eternal. How long will the Holy Spirit be with the people of God? Forever. So when you meet someone who says, I believe that that a Christ follower can lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or lose his or her salvation, say with humility and boldness, that is not the teaching of sacred Scripture. That is not the teaching of the Word of God, for the Holy Spirit will be with the people of God forever. In verse 17, we've already read this, we learned that the Holy Spirit, Jesus promises that He dwells with you and will be with you. Why now does, the whole, does, does Jesus Christ refer to the Holy Spirit in future tense? Why does He say, 
the Holy Spirit will be in them? The answer is very simple and very basic. Because in the Old Testament times, we need to remember the Spirit of God came upon His people. You remember when the Spirit of God came upon Samson? Oh, it's a great story. When's someone going to do the movie on Samson? Right. Like, right? Like Peter Jackson would do it. With all the action. Oh, it'd be tremendous. But the Holy Spirit came upon Samson. Then what happened? He left. The Holy Spirit would come on King David. And then what would happen? He would depart. And that's how the Holy Spirit operated in the days of the Old Testament under the terms of the Old Covenant. The Old Testament promises now there will be a future day when God would put His Spirit on His people. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we read these words, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit will be put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. John MacArthur helpfully adds, Under the old covenant, the spirit was present with believers in a general sense. But soon, as Christ promised his disciples, the comforter, the paraclete, the helper, the counselor, would come, as MacArthur says, in an unprecedented way, personally and permanently, to indwell those who believed. There was to come for believers a giving of the Spirit by which unique power would be provided for ministry and evangelism. That happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given to believers in a new fullness that became normative for all believers since. The problem in my mind is that it is not only normative to have the Holy Spirit now, I think it has become too Normative. That is to say, I believe, as I prayed earlier, that some of us who consider ourselves to be within the Baptist tradition, that's me, and hopefully it's many of you, that we have, to our peril, we have neglected the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He has become all too normal. We neglect His person and work in our lives. I want you to see another reality with me in verses 18 and 19, where Jesus says that he will not leave the disciples as orphans. That is to say, we will never be alone. We will never be alone. I'm curious if you have ever felt the sting of loneliness, where you lost your, your friend, you lost your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or you lost your spouse, or you lost someone close to you, and you, you feel, as we all have, the sting of loneliness. Know that, in a final sense, we will not be left as orphans. Jesus says, I will come to you, which indicates that Jesus will, first of all, come to his disciples after the resurrection, but Jesus would also abide with his disciples through the agency of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see also that He will unite us through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And most explicitly in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer Dave Steele that lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, insert your name, the life I live, now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave Himself for me. Finally, we learn that He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance the words of Jesus. Look at verse 26. 
These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Get in the, get in the moccasins of the disciples now. Get in the sandals of the disciples. You're thinking to yourself, there he goes again. Hey, Peter, did you hear that? He said it again, while I am still with you. Now, the disciples weren't rocket scientists, right? But they were picking it up. As my wife says, are you picking up what I'm laying down? Do you think they're getting it? I think they're beginning to understand. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance the words of Jesus. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. I believe here we have a specific promise to these men who are following the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit will be the agent of divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit would not only give them the ability to discern spiritual truth, but now, imagine this, they would have a role in recording it. Can you imagine that? That the Holy Spirit would enable them to record the words of of the living God. Second Peter chapter 1 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Test question. Who wrote the Word of God? Frank, you can't answer this question. Who wrote the Word of God? Man? Or the Holy Spirit? <laughs> One more time. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That should help. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who wrote sacred Scripture? The Holy Spirit or man? The answer is yes! Do you get it? It's not just the Holy Spirit. It's not just man. It is as the Holy Spirit, for instance, inspires the Apostle Peter. He writes with a certain Peter-like nuance, right? Have you ever noticed the difference between Peter and John? Peter's the guy who denied Jesus. Peter's the guy, he, he's the impetuous one, right? Who carried a sword, who chopped off an ear. Can you imagine John ever doing that? Oh, no, no, no. John struggled with other things. John struggled with other things. These were both sinful men, but the Holy Spirit now empowers the people of God to pen sacred Scripture. And since the Holy Spirit inspired God's Word, we hold that God's Word is authoritative, it is infallible, it is inerrant in the original autographs. It is the eternal Word of God. Scripture, indeed, is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. How do we know that? The Bible says all Scripture is breathed out by God. If you have the King James... Very few people are using the King James these days. But if you're using the King James, I would urge you to cross out the word. Don't worry, lightning will not strike you. Cross out the word inspired. Because here's what people think when they hear the word inspired. Ah, I got a good idea. He inspired me to write a poem. That's not what the word means. Cross out the word inspired and write in the words that emerge in the English Standard Version, breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We've seen who is promised. We have learned in part, what is promised? And I want to send you home with this question. Why now does Jesus make this promise? And there are two very important reasons. And they applied to the disciples 2,000 years ago, and they, they apply to me, and they apply to you when you struggle with your job, when you battle with your marriage, 
when you deal with teenagers who don't want to obey the authority that is in their life. They apply to you when you get older and you become fearful of dying. They apply to you when you get older and you get worried that that twitch you're experiencing may be a disease. They apply directly to you and to me. The first reason Jesus makes this promise is we need to be reassured. Don't you need to be reassured? Husbands, isn't it good when your wife says, when she just whispers in your ear, you're the man, or I love you. Dream whispers into my ear, you're the preacher man. You know what that means? It means I love you. I'm proud of you. Isn't it great to be reassured? Wives, don't you love it? When the flowers show up on the kitchen table, or you receive the, that gift, that box of chocolates, or your husband comes home and says, put on a new pair of clothes, we're going to Seattle, and we're, gonna, we're going out on the town. We're going to have a wonderful dinner. He reassures you of His love. In the Christian life, we need to be reassured of the hope that we have through the indwelling Spirit. And Jesus indeed left the disciples with a full-orbed hope before His death. On this side of the resurrection now, that is on our side of the resurrection, that is on the victorious side that we call the resurrection, we share the same hope that the disciples enjoyed, recognizing the work of the Spirit that is operative right now. There are some religious traditions that will remain nameless who say this, unless you speak in tongues... You do not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And let me say with all the humility I can gather that that there is nowhere in the Word of God that even hints at that. That when you become a follower of Jesus, you are instantly baptized with the fullness of the Spirit. With the fullness of the Spirit. I want you to remember this morning that nothing now can separate you from the love of God which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yesterday, Nathan and I had an opportunity to attend the Ligonier Conference. I wish everyone here could have been there the next time we have a a conference. um, We pray that many of us will go. But Derek Thomas, Dr. Derek Thomas, made an insightful statement. I, I found it fascinating. As he talked about the days when he ministered with Sinclair Ferguson, an amazing man of God. And as Sinclair Ferguson had the occasion to go on a sabbatical, Derek Thomas, who was the associate minister at that time, had the opportunity to basically preach on what God was laying on his heart. And so he went to what he referred to as the best chapter in the Bible. We could have some fun with this. You can think for a moment. What do you think the best chapter in the Bible is? Some of you in your minds right now have an objection, I will guarantee some of you have an objection to the very notion of the best chapter in the Bible. Because it sounds as if Dr. Thomas is pitting Scripture against Scripture. And so as he stood before the congregation and said, I will be preaching from Romans chapter 8, the best chapter in the Bible. A deacon approached him after the service and said, I've got a bit of a problem with you referring to Romans 8 as the best chapter in the Bible. And Derek Thomas listened to him patiently and proceeded to say, Listen, you have two minutes to live. And I'm your pastor, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to read the Word of God. Do you choose 1 Chronicles chapter 1, 2, and 3 filled with genealogies? Not to discount anything on the Word of God, because as we just read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, God's Word is breathed out by God. It's profitable, all of it, from the first verse in Genesis to the last book in Revelation, or the last word in Revelation. So it's not to discount it, but I would ask you, if you have two minutes, do you want me to stand over you and read 1 Chronicles chapter 1, 2, and 3, or Romans 8? Who chooses Romans 8? Why is that? The reason is because Romans chapter 8 
as Dr. Thomas pointed out, begins in verse 1 that says, Therefore there is no condemnation to anyone who is in Christ. And it ends with final perseverance. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like we have divine bookends. Verse 1, if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to hear before I breathe my last. That's why Derek Thomas refers to Romans 8 as the best chapter in the Bible. Indeed, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's a second answer to this question. Why does Jesus promise his disciples the gift of the parakletos, the gift of the Spirit? The second reason is that we need God's Power to enable us to obey. If you will go back to John chapter 14, we have failed to look at verse 15 at this point, where Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, there is, uh, I don't know if it would be safe to call it a trend, but I have talked to people in Whatcom County who don't believe there are any imperatives in the New Testament. Man, my bald head got really, lots of scratch marks on it that day. No, no imperatives. No commandments. They're all over Scripture. So Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here's the issue. We can't do it. We can't do it. We need God's power to enable us to obey. That is to say, we need the gospel. One writer says that obedience, then, is the hallmark of genuine saving faith and love for God. Did you catch those words? Obedience is a hallmark of genuine saving faith and love for God. Could I break into this citation for a moment and give you a challenge? Because this will relate to some. If you were here today and say, I trusted Christ at Camp Gilead when I was eight years old. Not interested in obeying Jesus. This is what the Bible would say. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Because those who love Jesus purpose to obey Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 15, 8, that, that his disciples will obey him. This is to my glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Do we do good works to get in? No. We do good works that flows out of justifying grace. Good works flow out of justifying grace, and God gets all the glory for any good that we do. And so this writer says, Obedience is a hallmark of genuine saving faith and love for God. Those who are truly saved by grace alone will invariably respond with a life of submission and service. With their hearts regenerated and their minds renewed, genuine Christians cannot help but outwardly reflect who they are on the inside, namely, new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want, if we want the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we must purpose in our hearts to obey the living God. In the Word of God, we see that we are called to be joyful people. We are called to be people filled with thanksgiving. You ever struggle with that one? Oh, boy. That we are called to be submissive people. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Children are called to submit to their parents. Employees are called to submit to the employer. But you don't understand. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Children are called to submit to mom and dad. Employees are called to submit to the employer. Warren Wiersbe says to be filled with the Spirit is the same as to be controlled by the Word. 
The Spirit of truth uses the word of truth to guide us into the will and the work of God. It sounds like something my good friend Wayne Pickens said over and over and over again. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. As we close, I want to have you turn with me to Acts chapter 1. I want to have you turn with me to Acts chapter 1 and Jesus utters some absolutely powerful words. Look with me at verse 8. He says to the disciples, But you will, future tense, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. At the epicenter of the circle is Jerusalem, moving on to Judea, rather, moving on to Samaria, moving on to all the ends of the earth. That includes places like Whatcom County. Now we live on the other side of the promise. Once again, put yourself in the sandals of these men of God. As Jesus said, there will come a day, it's coming soon, when you will receive the indwelling ministry, the permanent indwelling and empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're ready for it. For you and I, we have received it. We stand on the other side of Pentecost. Now, the Holy Spirit permanently inspires, rather uh, fills and empowers and indwells the people of God. How does that power enable us? Well, we've seen that that power enables us to obey the living God. But I want to wrap up with one more slide this morning and have you look with me at some practical ways that the Spirit helps His people. First of all, the Spirit of God enables us to be powerful witnesses. Here in a few moments, we are going to have a word of prayer with uh, Sam and April and the kids. And I would just say, personally, Sam and April, as, as we send you out now, you will be sent to be powerful witnesses. And how do I know that? One, because the Word of God says it. Two, because you've been doing it here. That will continue. The Miller's ministry will continue as they, they bear witness to God And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Spirit empowers us now with His presence. He empowers the people of God with His presence. Have you ever heard someone say, I can just sense the Spirit of God? That one's kind of always perplexed me because it never left. Right? The Spirit of God empowers His people and He empowers us with His holy presence. Finally... Let me read from Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Paul says, and by the way, Romans chapter 8 is the what? Okay. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's what the Spirit of God does. He not only enables us to be powerful witnesses, whether it's in Colville, whether it's in Whatcom County, whether it's in Minsk, Belarus, whether it's going down to the streets of Seattle, wherever it is, whether you're in in the villages in Mexico, He enables us to be powerful witnesses. He empowers us with His presence and He reminds us. He assures us. Remember what Dream says to me? Hey, preacher man. The Spirit whispers in our ear, you are a child of the living God. But I don't feel like a Christian. You are a child of the living God. We don't live on our feelings, do we? We live on what the Scripture says is true about us. This is the great promise of the Holy Spirit. May the mighty presence and the mighty power of the Spirit of God encourage you as you live for the glory of God. And may you be captured by the joy that he brings. And may trouble turn to triumph as you are transformed by the great promise that is not ours in the future, as the disciples understood. It is ours today in June of 2016. I pray today you would be encouraged knowing a little bit more about the great promise. Let's pray together.
I thank you, Father, for the gospel. We recognize that we are called to be obedient people. We are called to be holy people. We are called to keep commandments. But we recognize we can't do any of it apart from the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit to enable us. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here now, that your presence is active with us, and that you are indwelling each one of your people, that you have a purpose to empower your people. And I pray, God, that as we move forward as a church family, that we would be daily captivated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we would be daily captivated by the power of the gospel that enables us to live the Christian life. Forgive us, God, for trying to do it on our own. Forgive us for trying to work our way to the celestial city. Indeed, nothing could be further from the truth. May we rely on the gospel of grace. God, I pray that you'd encourage your people today, that your Holy Spirit, once again, would do a mighty work. And now as we come to the table, we are reminded of the importance of the, the bread, which points to the body of Jesus. We are reminded of the importance of the cup that points us to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Jesus, to be satisfied with all that you are for us. May our faith rest in you. Amen.